This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon. Welcome back for another wonderful class. I'm glad I mentioned last week that this week is Bring a Friend Week. I see some of you brought some friends. We always welcome friends. We even welcome over here, by the way, friends of friends. Yep, that's a thing. So thank you all for coming out. I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank the amazing staff at Yeshua Beth Yudah and Partners Detroit for making this amazing Lunch and Learn. By the way, I do love you all, and I advocated on your behalf, and that's why you can see they started serving Coke Zero instead of just Diet Coke. Yes, that's how you know your rabbi cares about you when he makes sure they serve Coke Zero. I also want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It's an app. It's a website, and it has... Many, many hundreds of thousands of hours of amazing Torah content. And I just want to say that this week, unfortunately, the founders of Torah Anytime's, um, I, I believe their, there was, their, was it their mother or grandmother who passed away? But either way, the learning this week should be a chus for the alias neshama, for the elevation of the soul of the founder of Torah Anytime's relative, who passed away. I don't know who it is right now. I can't remember exactly, but uh, it should be as chus. I think it was their mother, and it should be as chus for her alias neshama. Um, okay. Let's get started. This week is Parshas Vayera. And Parshas Vayera tells us the ultimate story of chesed, of kindness, in the entire Torah. We know that we have three patriarchs, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And of them, Avraham is known, you know, in English we say honest Abe, but really Yaakov is the one who's known. Titan Emes Yaakov give truth to Yaakov. Avraham is known for chesed. Titan Emes Yaakov chesed la Avram, kindness to Avram. And in this week's Torah portion, we see, interestingly enough, actually, in this week's Torah portion, we see two of the ultimate signature moves. You know, when I was a kid, we used to play video games, right? And the video games, you'd have each player... I remember we used to play this game called Street Fighter. Oy. Street Fighter. And people had their own signature moves. They have special moves. So like, there was one guy who was like a, like a U.S. Army guy, and he had this move where he would like... Hayugi! He, he, he would like throw out like little, you know, like little um, frisbees of fire, and then one guy would go like this and shoot out a ball fire, and there was a, a big sumo wrestler. His name was E. Honda. His special move was... He would literally just go... <laughs> just like slapping you up, and then there was like a, a Hindu guy who had like a foot that extended out like 10 feet. So everyone had their special moves. You do down, down, push, and like boom, he'd do their special move. So, like, the special move of Avraham is chesed, kindness. That's on display in this week's Torah portion. The special move of Yitzchak is Gevura, absolute ultimate strength. And that's on display in this week's portion as well, because in this week's portion, at the end of the portion, we have the story of the Akedah, the story of the binding of Isaac, where Isaac says, please bind me up. I want to be able to control myself, and I'm even putting things in, in place to make sure that I'll control myself. So bind me up, please, Dad, so that I don't end up moving out of where I'm supposed to be when it's the ultimate time for me to be a sacrifice. That ability to hold yourself back so dramatically, and even put things in place to make sure that you don't make the wrong moves. People think that the biggest deal is to not make the wrong, to not make mistakes. That's not the biggest thing in life, by the way. The biggest thing in life is to say, "Bind me up." Is to find ways to control your life so that you don't end up facing tests. For example, let's say someone has 
uh, a phone addiction, right? They're always on their phones. You ever heard of such a thing like this? <laughs> Never heard of such a thing like this. But imagine if somebody had this thing, what they could do, for example, is they could set their phone to screen time uh, lock, and they could have somebody else have the passcode, and their, their phone shuts off at 11 o'clock at night, and they can't use it, right? What's greater, the person who just has his phone running all the time, and he struggles sometimes at night, or the person who says, bind me up. I don't want to deal with the struggle. Like Yitzhak says to his father, right? I don't want to deal with the struggle of you. I see the knife coming down, and I'm afraid I'm going to get a, you know, startled, and I'm going to jump away, but I want to be the proper sacrifice, so bind me up. The greatest move when it comes to Gavuro, the greatest move of showing restraint and self-control is putting things in place in your life that you're not constantly being forced to use your self-control. I'll give an example. There is a Nobel Prize winning economist named Amos Tversky who worked with another Nobel Prize winning economist named Daniel Kahneman. Okay? These guys are what's called behavioral economists. Okay? Behavioral economists. And what they discovered is that people want to save up for retirement. Right? That makes sense. We all want to save up for retirement. The problem is, once the money comes into your account, right, and you get your paycheck, and your paycheck is whatever it is, $1,000, and then right then they're having a promotional offer from Verizon. You can get a new iPhone 14 for just $700 minus a $300 rebate if you stay with them for 17 years. <laughs> And you're like, man, oh man, I want that. It's only going to cost me 400 and it looks so cool. But I have a phone that's perfectly usable right now, but it looks so cool. So what do we end up doing? We end up spending the money. Because we were tempted, and because the money was in our account. What did Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, with their behavioral economics, come up with? They said, here's what you need to do. You need to set it up that your money for retirement never touches your account. That when you get paid, you set it up with your employer that you have $1,000, a hundred of it never even touches your account. A hundred of it is automatically sent to your retirement account, and a th- a 900 goes to your account. You'll spend your 900, a hundred will go towards retirement. Right? It's, again, it's setting up the systems in your life to make sure you are where you want to be without being forced to make decisions all the time. So again, Yitzchak, who again is the paradigm of Gevura, the paradigm of self-restraint, what is his greatest move of self-restraint? His greatest move of self-restraint is not restraining himself when it's difficult. It's setting up a situation in which he wouldn't have to face difficulty. Are you guys with me? Okay. So another example. Let's say a person does not want to eat too much chocolate. But then, <laughs> it's right after Halloween, and you can go into the store, the CVS, or Rite Aid, and they have big bags of chocolate, all kinds, Rolos, Reese's Pieces, Babe Ruth's, Three Musketeers, Milky Way, and it's a whole bag of candy for $1.50. The smart thing is not to buy it. Not to buy it and then it's there and then every single time you pass by, every time you're bored, right? Every time you're bored in life is a struggle between eating and not eating. I don't know how. It's like (laughs) boredom equals struggle to eat or not to eat. So if you have it in your house and you keep saying no, you keep saying no, you keep saying no, that's not the strength. The strength is to say, we're not going to have it in my house. 
Yitzchak, again, Yitzchak Avinu, the paradigm of self-restraint and self-control, is his ultimate act of self-restraint and self-control is pre-preparing himself for the situation that it shouldn't be a struggle when it comes. So that's Yitzchak. But I want to talk actually more about Avraham. Avraham is the paradigm of kindness. Titan Emes Liyakov. Sorry, and Chesed Avram. Chesed Avram. Avram is the ultimate paradigm of kindness. And we see that on full display in the first eight verses of this week's Torah portion. Of course, Avram is recovering and recuperating from his circumcision, which he did at the age of 99. I don't recommend that for most people. But of course, Avram only got the commandment at the age of 99. Okay, so let's see what happens while he's recuperating. And we've actually done this before, but we're going to do... We've done these verses before, but we're going to do different, some, a bunch of stories about them. I'm sure you guys are probably bothered if I tell too many stories, but that's what we're going to do today. Okay. In the plains of Mamre, and he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He's looking out for his guests. And he lifted his eyes. Avram lifts his eyes, and behold, Behold, three men were there in the distance. And he sees them, and he runs out to them, and he begs them, please don't leave me. Please don't just pass by my house. Allow me the honor and the opportunity to serve you. I'll get you some bread and some water or whatever, and I'll, 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 I'll let you rest under my tent. Under the tree, I'm sorry. And they said, okay, fine. And of course, what does he do? He runs to his wife. He says, let's prepare a whole feast. And then he goes to the cattle, and he prepares a whole feast of cattle. And a, there's a heaping platter. By the time they're finished, by the time they're ready, the food is ready to be served, there's a platter of shalosh se'im kemach. There's enough rugalas there to feed a small army. Okay? And there's three fresh calf tongues on a plate with mustard. Right? First recorded time in history that we see mustard. I'm not even joking. First time we see a condiment being used in history is Avram serving a condiment. Isn't that amazing? The first time we see a condiment. Now, of course, if you want to know what a condiment is, go to any bachelor pad and open up the refrigerator. That's all there is. <laughs> Condiments and drinks, right? <laughs> so, uh, the first time in the history of the mankind that we see, the idea of a condiment being used is right here. Now, why is that? It's to teach us a lesson that when you get into your chesed mode, when you get into your kindness mode, don't scrimp and save. Go above and beyond. I'm sure the tongue would have tasted fine on its own, but he serves tongue with mustard. Just luxury, just put that cherry on top. When you're doing acts of kindness, put the cherry on top. Go the extra mile. Go the distance. Make sure you do it above and beyond. Okay. So Avram, you know, he sets it up. Then Avram ran to the cattle, took a calf tender and good, and gave it to the youth who hurried to prepare it. Okay. And he takes the butter and the milk and the calf that he prepared. Of course, notice that the butter and the milk goes before the calf. We have to wait a long time in between meat and milk. We don't have to wait a long time between milk and meat. So he first serves them the butter and the milk and some, maybe some bread and some cake, with that, whatever, that, he, that his wife made. And then he mm-hmm. brings out the main course, the ben of Akar, Asher Asad, the young calf that he makes, and he gives it to them, and he is standing above them, and they are eating. So much to unpack here. So let's go through a few different sources. Source number one, the Talmud, Tractate Sukkis. 
page 49b. Tanah Rabbanan, the rabbis taught, Beshlosha dvarim gedola gemilas chasadim min In three ways, kindness is greater than charity. Again, in three ways, kindness is greater than charity. Hold on. First of all, there's the amazing kindness of God that He gave us H2O. Because man, oh man, can you imagine what life would be like without H2O? I'll give you a hint. It wouldn't be life. Okay, here we go. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam shahakal niyeh bedvarom. Okay. Says the Gemara in Tractate Sukkot. Charity, kindness, gedola b'shloshet varm in three ways. Gedola gemilos chasadim minatzdaka. Kindness is greater than charity. How? Number one. Excuse me. Tzdaka b'mamono. Charity is when you give away your money. Gemilos chasadim bein begufo bein b'mamono. Your charity you can do with your money. Or with your body, with your actual actions. Okay? So when you actually actively involve yourself in doing something, you physically get active, you do something with your physical body that is greater than you just do something with your money. Your money is an agent of you, but you are you. So it's much better if you do something on your own than if you do something through an agent of yours, i.e., your money. We'll see a story about that in a moment. <clears throat> Number two. Tzedakah Charity can only be given to poor people. But if a person has plenty of means, financially, you can't give them charity. And there are many, many millions of people who don't need any charity. But they absolutely need kemilas chasadim. They absolutely need kindness. A matter of fact... Sometimes, the amount of money you have and the kindness you need are in direct proportion. When somebody becomes like someone becomes mega mega wealthy, like mega mega wealthy, it's almost impossible for them. Like they don't. It's hard to find people who really are being kind to them just for, for really for kindness' sake. So many people are kind of just hanging on to be around the funds or whatever it is. So charity is only to the poor. Kindness is to the rich and the poor. Everybody needs kindness. And lastly, tzedakah l'chaim, kindness you do to people who are alive. Gemilos chasadim ben l'chaim ben l'mesim, when it comes to acts of, sorry, charity is only people who are alive. Kindness you can do even after someone dies. For example, and this is something that I've been here in Detroit now for 17 plus years. Something I've been working on for my entire time since I'm here. Go to a... I can't say I go to a lot of funerals. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a funeral, I'm not a general eulogy giver. But I've been to a number of many, many, many funerals. There's a custom that I've seen that I, you know, I didn't used to go to a lot of funerals, so I wasn't really aware. But when I got here, and I remember for the first time seeing it, often the way they do a burial, okay, is they go, they have the, the chapel, they have the eulogies, and they take the body in the procession to the cemetery. And by the cemetery they have a whole thing set up. Sometimes it's gonna be raining, they've got a little, you know, a little canopy or whatever it is. 
And then there's this little wheelbarrow right next to the open grave. And in the wheelbarrow is a little bit of dirt. And what happens? So they put, they lower the grave into the ground, and they take, you know, the, the, the mourners take those little mini shovels, and they put the ground on. And then what happens? Then they walk away. They, unfortunately, they, they, they turn their back, they walk away, and they get back into the limo or the cars or the procession, and they go away. And then what happens? And then a guy from the gravedigger's union, that's, that's, what they, that's what they all are, right? Sponsored by Carhartt. They all, the, the, grave digger, the grave digger's union, they, the guy comes out, right? And first they, they lower, they, in Michigan, in certain states, depending on what the laws are, but they lower like a, a cap, a heavy cement cap, on the frame of the grave. And then another guy from the grave diggers union comes, and he's got a backhoe full of dirt, and he's in the middle of listening to, you know, music while he's chewing gum, and brings his backhoe up, and has this whole thing of dirt, and just like, and drops it down on the, uh, on the grave, on the open grave. I don't know, and again, I'm not, God forbid, blaming anybody. This is what people do. But I don't know that that's the most respectful way to send off somebody that we love. The last opportunity we have to show somebody our care and respect for them is when we bury them. There's a Gemara that says that there's a Gemara that says that a person has to daven that he should have peace up until his last shovel full of dirt. I.e., the soul is still very much present until the uh, until the grave is filled out, and we do what's called tzur sakever. We make a little, a little. We do a little marking around the edges to show this is the grave. The soul is very much around, and the soul doesn't want to have dirt splat on it by a grave diggers grave diggers union guy who's listening to gangster rap or whatever. <laughs> what we the, the the way that has been the tradition of the Jewish people for hundreds of years, and indeed, and now again, obviously. No one's expecting, you know, people, the, the elderly relatives of someone who passed to do the heavy lifting because it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work because the dirt is heavy, depending if it's raining or not raining or whatever. It's a lot of work to get, but there's usually young people as well, relatives. The most beautiful way to show respect to someone who passed is to have the family members with their own hands bury the person and, and achieve that closure and do it by, you know, personally with shovels. So, you know, ever since I've gotten here, I've really tried to, I guess like a little crusade of mine, to really try to push people every time, you know, I'm at a funeral, even if it's not a funeral that I was expecting to go to, whatever it is, I'll try to arrange that the, I'll go over to the caretakers, whatever, the, the, you know, the people at the cemetery and say, can you bring the dirt? We'll do it ourselves. Um, but it's something that we should all, we should, it should all be part of our plans, that, when, when, when we are burying relatives or even whatever it is, we should always make sure that there's that last respect. Gemilas chasadim, we said over here. And of course, actually, ironically, that's more next week's Torah portion when we talk about Avram burying Sarah. And that's where we see the whole story about the incredible honor and accord that must be given to someone after they pass. But it's part of this Gemara. You can give somebody charity while they're alive. Once they're dead, you cannot, but you can give them gemilas chasadim. You can do acts of kindness to that. And that's considered to be the ultimate acts of kindness. It's called chesed shal emes. The funeral home over here in Detroit is called chesed shal emes. Why? Chesed shal emes means true kindness, because when you help, when you do that, you're not expecting the person to give you anything. 
person's already gone. But you're just doing it to show honor and accord and respect to the person who passed. Okay. Now, to give an example of a story to indicate this idea, so we said again, kindness is greater than charity in three ways. Number one, kindness, charity is with your money. Kindness is with your money and your body. Charity is only to the poor. Kindness can be to the poor and to the rich. Kindness is only to the people who are living. Charity, sorry. Charity is only to the living. Kindness can be to the living and the dead. There's a story in the Gemara. Tractate Kesubus. Page Samach Zion Amr Beis 67b. And by the way, guys, when I say this stuff, fact check me. Go look it up. No problem. <laughs> okay. So the Gemara Kesubus Samach Zion Amr Beis 67b says the following story. Mar Ukva was a great sage in the Talmudic era. There was a poor person who lived in his neighborhood. And every day, Mar Ukva would go on his way home from his lecture. He would go to yeshiva, he would give a lecture. On his way home from his lecture, he would go by that person's house and he would just drop four coins in that person's... Every, in those days when you had a door, it had like a hinge. It had like a, so basically you had a, like a door and then there would be like a little receptacle... Okay, when the hinge would lie in there and it would just swing open and close. It wasn't like we have today, perfectly neat hinges. So he would drop it in that little hinge spot, in the little, you know, in the little hole in the floor where the hinge of the door was in. He would drop four coins. One day, the guy, the poor person, who every single day someone was giving him four coins as charity, he finally decided, I've got to find out who my secret benefactor is. Okay? For years, this guy's been giving me four coins a day. And I, I, I just want to figure out, who is giving me all this money? Now, we know that charity given anonymously is way more valuable than charity given to someone's face. Because when you give it to their face, they know that they're getting it from you. It's uncomfortable. They feel indebted to you. right? So the best way to give charity is to give charity anonymously. So for years, Marokva had been giving this charity anonymously. But that, that day, this person decided that tomorrow, I'm going to find out who my secret benefactor is when I hear the money being dropped in the thing, I'm going to run to the front door, I'm going to look outside, and I'm going to see who has been my secret benefactor. It so happens that that day, Marukva's shear went a little bit late. Right? His studies went a little bit late. I'm not the only one that finishes past 1 o'clock sometimes. <laughs> right? So that day, Marukva's shear went a little bit late. And his wife was home, and she sees her husband isn't home yet. She says, you know what? I've got some free time. Let me go walk my husband home from yeshiva. So she goes to yeshiva. She meets him as he's coming out. She says, oh, look, I had a couple hours extra. I want, you know, not a couple hours, whatever. I had some extra time. I wanted to walk you home. Great. They're walking home. And he says to her, I'm going to go put the money in the, in, the, in the vault over there because that's what I always do. And she knew, of course, she was a partner in all of his acts of charitable kindness. So he goes and he throws down the money and he can hear from in the house, that as soon as the money is dropped down, the clink of the money, this person gets up and starts coming towards the door. So he says to his wife, let's run before they see us. He wants to maintain, he, he doesn't want this person to realize that the person who's been supporting him has been the main rabbi of the town. It's not comfortable, you know? It's one thing you get a secret benefactor, but when you realize the secret benefactor has been the rabbi of your shul, it's not, it's not so comfortable. So he says to his wife, let's go, and they start running. The poor man starts giving chase. And they're running through buildings and alleyways. You know what I'm saying? I'm sure you can imagine it's like a James Bond movie. 
He's got his like jab. He's got an Aston Martin, and he's shooting off flares and decoys. But somehow, the poor man is just staying right behind him, and it's right at his six o'clock. And then finally, they zoom in. They run into a building. And as they get into the building, they realize, uh-oh, there's only one entrance to this building. And there's not even windows on the other side that we can crash through, as they do in the James Bond movies. <laughs> Where are we going to go? This guy's going to be here in ten seconds. And they realize that there's an, a big, like an oven, like kind of like a baker's oven. And it's sitting there, and there's no fire in the oven. So they say, let's just jump in the oven and close the door. They jump in the oven, they close the door. As they're in the oven, they realize that while the fire was not on now, the fire had been on earlier that morning, and the rocks were still super hot, right? The stone ovens, why do they make stone ovens for pizza and for matzo baking and for all that? Stone retains heat for a long, long, long time. It takes a while to get hot, but once it gets hot, it retains heat for a long, long time. So suddenly, Mar-Ukva says, oh my gosh, my feet are burning. She says to him, just stand on my feet. My feet are not burning. Okay, so he stands on her feet, and they hear the man coming in, they hear the man looking around, the man leaves the building, they quickly jump out, all is good. But all wasn't good, because Mar-Ukva is wondering, in what merit did my wife's feet not burn, even though they were on boiling hot rocks, and my feet were burning? In what way is she greater than me? I want to understand that. Like, not as like, I'm happy that she should be greater than me. Everyone should be happier that their spouse should be better than them. But I just want to understand, where did this come from? What zechus, what merit does she have? Right? So she said, Marokva says to his wife, what great merit do you have that your feet weren't burning and my feet were? Now, by the way, very interesting. If it had been her hands, there would be no, there would be no question. Because we know that women have bubby hands. Bubby hands are the things that allow women to, for some reason, open up the oven and take out boiling hot pans. And you're looking at them and you're like, what are you, what are you doing, right? My wife has, my wife has bubby hands. You know, my, 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 my mother has, my mother has bubby, bubby hands. Bubby hands is this amazing thing where you can just open up an oven or take something off the, 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 the fire and your hands don't get burned. My hands, I'm like, there are times, literally, it's, but you know, it all works out. In our house, because there are times where my wife says, can you reach the thing on the top shelf? And I say, gladly. So she borrows my height. And there are times when I say, can you take a boiling hot pot off the, oven, off the stove? And she says, gladly. So I borrow her bubby hands. Okay, so if it had been hands, it wouldn't be a question. But it was feet. And there's no such thing as bubby feet. <laughs> so Marukva says, how is it that your feet were not getting burnt and my feet were getting burnt? So listen to what his wife says. His wife says, we both do acts of kindness. When you take money every single day and you drop it off in this guy's house. I do acts of kindness. People come, they knock on the door, and I give them bread. I give them food. I give them a meal. The difference is that my kindness has a, it's a closer to, it's a closer to the actual act of, the final act of giving. Meaning, I give somebody bread, he eats that bread. The bread that I gave him kept him alive. You give him money, he has to go take the money and buy the bread to keep him alive. Kindness is greater than stucca because kindness is with your body and stucca is with your money. Marukva, you give your money, your money acts as an agent on your behalf to buy this guy bread. I give the guy bread. 
So we see that when you have an opportunity to do a mitzvah with your body, it's way more valuable than just writing a check. Now this does not mean that writing a check is not valuable. Writing a check is extraordinarily valuable. And please continue to write lots of checks. Okay? <laughs> However, what I'm talking about is that when you have the opportunity to volunteer, for example, you know, they're doing a uh, food drive, or they're doing a, a coat drive, and they're collecting coats, and you have the ability to sign people in, or check people, whatever it is. Like, you have the ability to act and physically be involved in helping a, char- a charitable organization, or a some kind of kindness project happened, doing it with your body is worth way more than doing it with your soul. Sorry, with your agents. Which is why Avraham, even though he has many servants, he was a very wealthy man at this time, he had many servants, he could have easily asked them, like, look guys, I went, I, I, I brought in the business, now you guys take care of handling the whole account. That's what often happens in the financial markets, right? You have the big guy who brings in the business, the Sam Bernstein, call Sam! You think Sam is handling anybody's case at this point? <laughs> Absolutely not. He's handing it off to his minions of referral networks, right? So Avram could have easily been, look, I brought in the business. I ran out to these guys and I got them in. Now they're willing to come to my house. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to my bed and recuperate from my circumcision. How about you guys just uh, get him some food, get him some water, bring him some this? No, Avram does it all himself. Because acts of kindness that you do yourself are much more valuable than acts of kindness you do through an agent, whether it be money or the servants of your household. In our home, I see my mother is over here on the Zoom. When I was a kid, I've said this, I'm sure, before a lot, but I'll say it again. When I was a child, you know, we used to have people who would sometimes come collecting from Eretz Yisrael, charitable funds. And the setup of my house when I was a kid is the kitchen was right near the door. But my mom or my father would often call us and tell us to please bring a drink to the person, to the guest who came. Because they wanted us to have that opportunity to actually do the physical act of kindness. And to this day, when we have guests come to our home, if one of my children is home, I usually ask my children to give the guests an orange or an orange juice or an apple or some apple juice or a tangerine. I'll stop here. Okay, fine. (laughs) Anyway, so... The more you can physically involve yourselves in acts of kindness, the better it is. That's idea number one. Next. Chesed as a preservative. Chesed as a preservative. There was a great rabbi known as the Stipler Gon. He was the father of Rav Chaim Kanievsky. Rav Chaim Kanievsky was one of the greatest sages of, of our generation. He passed away just recently, about a year and a half ago probably, maybe even less. And um, his father was Rav Yaakov Kanievsky. Rav Yaakov Kanievsky wrote a famous, famous work called the Kehilos Yaakov. He was a, also, I mean, we're talking about brilliant, brilliant mind, both of them. And they both have fascinating stories, backstories. But I don't want to get into the whole backstory right now. I want to tell over what the Stipler Gon used to say. The Stipler, again, that's Rav Yaakov Kanievsky, Rav Chaim Kanievsky's father. He used to say that anything that you do with Kindness will cause it to stay forever. And he gave the following story. When he was a young man, the stipler, when he was a young man, he wanted to learn a certain sefer, a certain book. <clears throat> the book was called Imre Moshe by Rav Moshe Sakalovsky. 
But he didn't have the money to be able to pay for the whole book at that time. So he wrote a letter. Again, this is clearly, it's so fascinating. Like, in those days, writing letters was such a common thing, you know? He wrote a letter to the author of the Imre Moshe, and he said, you know, my name is Yaakov Kanievsky. I'm learning in yeshiva. I'm a bachar. I'm a, I'm a young man, you know, I'm a young yeshiva student. I don't have a lot of money, and, but I very much am interested in learning your Sefer, your holy book, the Imre Moshe. Would you be able to give it to me for a discount? And the Imre Moshe said, you know what? Someone wants to learn my Sefer. I want them to be able to learn my Sefer. He sent him the book for free. Okay. An act of incredible kindness, charity, whatever you want to call it. Then came the Holocaust. Now both Rav Moshe Sokolovsky and the Stipler both survived the Holocaust. However, here's where it's interesting. They both were in Israel after the Holocaust. And the Imre Moshe, Rav Moshe Sokolovsky, wanted to reprint his book. They couldn't find any copies until they found that one copy. The one copy that was given to the stipler as a kindness and for free was the one copy they were able to find so they could reprint all of his work. Can you imagine? He spent years writing a book and it would have been lost to history if not for the fact that he gave one copy away for, for free as a kindness and that's the one copy that ended up preserving his legacy and giving him the ability to reprint it after the war. Isn't that amazing? Story number one. Story number two. There was a very wealthy man who used to support the Jews in what was called the Yishuv. The Yishuv was the Jews living in Eretz Yisrael. Okay? If you actually read, it's fascinating. Again, we talk about this whole Arab-Israeli conflict. It makes it sound like Arabs were like all over the land for thousands of years, and then these Jews came out of nowhere and they want it. If you actually read the accounts of people who visited Israel in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, the place was empty. Mark Twain, who, by the way, loved the Jews, okay? You have what's called an, an anti-Semite, that's a guy who hates the Jews, and you have a, a philo-Semite, right? A, person, a philo-Semite, a philo is like a lover of, so uh, onophile is someone who loves wine. Right? An audiophile is someone who loves good quality music. Right? I'm what people call sometimes a bourbon file. But no, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, um, the, Mark Twain was a, a philo Semite. He loved Jews. He went to go visit the land of Israel. Okay, so he's an unbiased opinion. If anything, he's biased towards the Jews. When he gets to Israel and he writes about this, again, he's writing about this in the early 1900s. And he writes, there's just nobody here. Right? It's like, knock, knock, to the land of Israel. Who's there? Nobody. Nobody's home. He writes how he traveled from the port of Jaffa to Tiveria, okay? And didn't see a single human being on the entire journey. Okay? He says, the, more, the closer you got to Jerusalem, the more bare and rocky, dreary, and repulsive the landscape became. There was just no one home. No one home. There was a few thousand Jews living in Jerusalem. There was a few thousand Jews living in Safed and Safat. And there was a few thousand Arabs living in those areas. So like the, the entire population of the land of Israel in the year 1900 was 
definitely below 100,000, probably below 50,000, the entire land of Israel. And a lot of those Jews, they didn't have what to live on. They were living, it was very, very poor. There's actually an amazing series of books called, um, I think it's called Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, either it's called Yerushalayim Shel Zahav or Yerushalayim Shel Mala. I think it's called Yerushalayim Shel Mala, like the heavenly Jerusalem. And it tells the stories of the people living in the old Yeshua, the people were living back in the day when Jerusalem was like, just in its infancy, you know, 150 years ago, whatever it was. These people lived with great poverty, and often they were being supported by philanthropic efforts on behalf of their brethren in Europe. For example, Baron Rothschild, right? He was known to be a huge supporter of people living in Israel. And other wealthy Jews, they felt like these people are sacrificing so much to have a Jewish stronghold. We want to have a Jewish presence in the Holy Land, right? We want to have a Jewish presence in Eretz Yisrael, the land that is our homeland. we got to support them. So just like right now, the federations and the JDCs, they help support Jews all over the world, in Russia and Ukraine and whatever, all these places, Moldova, wherever there's you know, many elderly Jews who are still living there, and different Jewish organizations help support them. Many wealthy philanthropic Jews used to help support people who lived in the old Yishuv. So there was a wealthy man, and he used to be very, very supportive of the Jews living in Eretz Yisrael. And he would send them money every year, before Pesach, before Sukkot. Constantly, he was very, very supportive. Unfortunately, he died in the Holocaust. Fortunately, almost his entire estate had already been liquidated. Because he saw the writing on the wall, he had liquidated his entire estate and he had deposited it in Swiss bank accounts. Unfortunately, the Swiss bankers, the Swiss bankers, their names should be obliterated, they wouldn't give the money out. His son came, and he was able to prove that he was his father's son, and he said, I'm here for my father's money. My father deposited, you know, whatever the number was, Tens of millions of whatever it is, lattes or whatever, you know, whatever it was, a fortune, a fortune, a fortune of money. My father deposited a fortune of money with you. I want that money. And he was able to prove that he was his father's son. But what did the Swiss banker say? Oh, but sir, do you have the bank account number? The bank account number? My father was shipped off to Auschwitz and we never saw him again. We don't have bank account numbers. Our home was invaded by Poles who stole everything, and we, we have nothing. I was put on the same boxcar as my father. I made it out alive. I worked my way through the war. We, we don't have bank account numbers. Oh, then we, we, can't, give you the, we can't give you the money because you, you need the bank account number. He's like, look, you know that I'm my father's son. You know who my father was. He'd been banking with you for decades before the war. He deposited millions and millions of dollars before the war with you. You know what? I'm so sorry, sir, but we can't give it to you without a bank account. Horrible. By the way, these kind of stories happen all the time. The wealth, the wealth that was stolen by the Nazis, of course, there's nothing compared to the lives, but the wealth that was stolen by the Swiss bankers, it's unbelievable. Hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars in today's money. Hundreds, probably, who knows what? Could be even trillions. I mean, priceless art, all kinds of things. Stolen by the Swiss bankers. So this, this guy... He moves to Eretz Yisrael. He has nothing. He moves to Eretz Yisrael, and he's living in Israel as a poor man. His father was one of the wealthiest people in his, in his country. And he's living as a poor man. 
in Israel. One day he's walking down the street and someone calls out to him, Isaac, Isaac! And he looks, Shalom Aleichem, Shalom Aleichem, what's your name? He says, they say, get into a conversation and he says to him, I'm the Gabite Tzedakah. Gabite Tzedakah is the person who takes care of charitable funds on behalf of a community or a show or something on behalf of a family office. He says, I'm the Gabite Tzedakah for the Jews over here in the Yishuv, the Jews living here in the old city. And your father was always so generous. And I remember one time he traveled to Israel and you were with him, and I don't even know how, but I, I just recognized you. Like, you were a child when you came. You were probably 15 years old, but I just, I just recognized you. No way. They sit there, they talk, and he's saying to me, Oh, your father was the best. He was the kindest. He sent us all the time. You know, what happened? So he says to him, oh, The Swiss, they stole all of our money. So what do you mean they stole all of our money? So I came back, I was able to prove that I'm me, and my father was my father, but I don't have the bank account numbers. So they... Uh, they won't give me back my money. He says, stay right here. The Gavite sucker goes running off. He comes back 10 minutes later and he's holding like a, like a, like a box, like a, like a little hinged box. And he opens it up. He says, here is every receipt from everything I ever got from your father. Let's find the bank account number. And sure enough, they found the bank account number and the family's fortune was restored only because of the charity and the kindness that he had done. Says the stipler, charity and kindness stays forever. Okay. That's idea number one. Sorry, number two. Next. I want to talk about the mitzvah of Achnasas Archim. Because again, the particular act of kindness that Avram Avinu was doing in the beginning of this Torah portion, it's called Hachnasas Archim, which means welcoming in guests. There was a man named Rav Yitzchak Isaac Sher. And he was the son-in-law of a rabbi known as the Saba of Slobodka, Rav Nassim Svi Finkel, the original. And he, his son-in-law, Rav Yitzchak Isaac Sher, was the Rosh Yeshiva of this big yeshiva in Europe called Slobodka. One time he was traveling in America... And he meets a very famous Jew who there's a book written about, a fascinating book, it's very worth, worth the read. My daughter just found it somewhere and she was reading it and she was blown away by it. The book is called All for the Boss. Okay? And it's a book written about a holy, holy Jew named Rav Yosef Yitzchak Herman. Rav Yaakov Yosef Herman. Rav Yaakov Yosef Herman. Who lived in New York in the early, towards the middle of the century, of the, 19th, of the 20th century. So, if you like Isaac Sher is, and by the way, I highly recommend the book if you can find it, all for the boss. It will blow you away just to hear about what people were like. So, Rav Yaakov Yosef Herman sees this rabbi, comes over, Shalom Lechem, Shalom Lechem, he says, You gotta do me a favor. I really need a guest for Shabbos this week. Can you please come? It's okay, sure, it'll be my honor. You know, he knew that this man was a very, um, had a very kosher home and all that. So, Friday night he goes to Shul. He walks back with Rav Yaakov Yosef Herman. They open the door, and there's 25 guests there. There's 25 guests. So at the end of the Shabbos meal, which of course was beautiful, with Tvar Torahs and incredible food, he says to Rav Yaakov Yosef Herman, he says, I don't understand. You told me you needed a guest. I was sure you had no guest for Shabbos. I felt bad. 
So I came. He says, well, you had plenty of guests. He says, you don't understand. Yaakov Yosef Erdman says, my wife works so hard all week to ensure that we have a beautiful Shabbos table to give to our guests. And I know how happy it makes my wife for each and every guest at our table. And I, as a husband, need to give my wife as much happiness in life as possible. I need a guest. I always need a guest. Every guest that I can get, I need another guest. I need another guest. Because every guest that I get will make my wife more happy. And I need to make my wife as happy as possible. Isn't that amazing? No, we're running out of room. No, just like... <laughs> One more. Okay, next story. This is an amazing story. There was a great rabbi in Jerusalem known as Rav Isser Zalman Meltzer. Okay? And he was a rabbi, and he was sitting in his house one day, and he had a bunch of students. And his house was a few floors up, a long staircase to get up, and one of his students happens to look out the window, and he can't believe his eyes. He sees the Brisker Rav. The Brisker Rav is coming up the steps. The Brisker Rav was a venerable sage, considered to be the, the greatest of the great. So the student yells out. He says, the, the Brisker Rav is coming up the steps. So Esther Zalman's Meltzer quickly jumps up out of his seat. Here's the amazing thing also. I, I love this. He quickly jumps out of his seat and he puts on his Shabbos jacket. Isn't that amazing? Just the idea. Like, a big rabbi is coming... I don't just put on a jacket. He was sitting in his, in his sleeves, whatever, in his shirt sleeves. It was very hot in those days. They didn't have air conditioning, whatever. But he doesn't just put on his, uh, on like a jacket. He puts on his Shabbos jacket. Because the brisker rub is coming up his steps. And he quickly puts on his Shabbos jacket and he runs out the door and he zooms down the steps. And he says, Oh, Shalom Aleichem, Rebbe, Shalom Aleichem. And the man looks up. It's not the brisker rub. <laughs> Someone who looked kind of like the Briskarov, and probably the student who thought the Briskarov was coming up, probably he didn't have the right uh, prescription on his glasses. I could see, you know, you could see the resemblance. They both have white beards, you know, whatever. But it sure ain't the Briskarov. Where Mr. Zalman Meltzer says, Please come upstairs. And he walks with the man. Such an honor to have you come to our house. We can't believe it. It's such an honor. And when the man comes to the house, he sits the man in the, at the head of the table, right? And he says, what can I get you? Can I get you a meal? Can I get you a drink? And he's, like, this is the greatest, Revis Alan Meltzer was one of the top five greatest rabbis. And this, the guest is a stranger. And he's like, can I get, can I get you, can I get you a whole meal? What can I get for you? We have some fresh bread. Maybe I can get you some bread with some, with some, some butter and some salt. What can I get for you? And so the man's like, it's okay, you know, it's okay. And he says, no, no, I, I need to get you something. What can I get you? Maybe a drink? He says, okay, okay, you can get me a drink. And Revis Salman himself runs in the kitchen and he makes a tea and he comes back out. And he says, what can I help you? What, to what do I deserve the incredible honor of you coming to my home? So the man says, yeah, I got to be honest with you, I'm a, I'm a very poor person and um, I, I need to go raise funds so I, I was wondering if you could vouch for me that, I, you know, write me a little letter saying this person really needs help. Can you help him out? Oh, for sure, right away. And he takes out a piece of paper and a pen and he starts writing this whole letter. And he's, the whole time he's writing a letter, he's, I'm so glad you're here. 
Finally, he says, okay, and he, the guy, man gets up to leave, and Revisa Zalman Meltzer, was an old man at the time, he walks him down all the steps, all the way down to the street, which is something he wouldn't normally do. It's, he was an older man. It was, so he comes back up, and all the students are sitting there, like, dumbfounded. And they say to the rabbi, like, you know, I'm not really sure, like, you know, if, why did, we, we made a mistake. We thought he was the briskerov. He's not the briskerov. Like, why did you treat him like he was the briskerov? So Reverse Alma Melter said, you know, sometimes when we do mitzvahs on a frequent basis, we lose track of the value of a mitzvah and the value of every Jew. Is this person not a child of Avram, Mitzchak, Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah? Is he not one of like, is he not a, a yid carrying a tremendous neshama? I should be doing this for every yid that comes to my house. For every time I get the opportunity to do Achmas Zarchim, I should be putting on my Shabbos jacket every time I get the opportunity to do Achmas Zarchim. And I don't, because unfortunately it's common and we lose track. But, but once I did, once I had the opportunity, once I launched myself into the full-on give somebody honor mode, should I pull it back because the person is not the brisker of? Which actually ties into another story about the Briskarov. But this one goes back to when the Briskarov lived in Europe. The Briskarov was once traveling late at night with another man. They were traveling from city to city. And they get to an inn. Now in the olden days, a lot of the inns on the roads from city to city were Jewish owned. And especially it was important because that's where you got, that was like a bed and breakfast. You'd get dinner there, you'd, you'd get food there. It was like, there was really no other way to travel. Like if you were traveling from your city to a city three days away, you know, that, that was basically, you would rely on finding a Jewish-owned inn and you would have some food there and then you'd continue on your way. So they get there, it's very, it's like, you know, it's late at night, it's 11 o'clock at night or whatever. So they knock on the door and the, uh, the owner of the inn comes down, he's in his, you know, he's in that nightgown shirt that the old people with the lantern, you know, like... And he says, you know, he says, uh, what are you guys doing so late? Why are you knocking on my door at 11 o'clock at night? He says, I'm so sorry. We just we were traveling. We just got here. Can we have a, can we have a room? He says, look, I'm, I'm not doing room, rooms now. Just, just sleep near the hearth. You know, sleep in the main area. There was like a big dining room. Just sleep near the, near the hearth. It's a little bit warmer, and I'll see you in the morning. And he goes back up and goes back to sleep. About an hour later, there's a big commotion. Three wagons pull up to the hotel. And who is it? It's none other than Rabbi Aaron of Kodnevav, a big, a, big, a big Hasidic rabbi. And he's there with all of his Hasidim. And as soon as the, home, the, the, the hotel owner sees who it is, he starts he comes calling out to his servants, they start setting up and getting a meal, and they start getting everything ready, he comes out, he opens the door, oh, the Rebbe's here, what an honor to see you here, and it's such a pleasure, it's such an honor, thank you for coming. And he starts welcoming him in, and the whole place gets into a bustle, we're going to make you a fresh meal right now, and all that. The Hasidic Rebbe, Rav Aaron of Kretnav, is walking, and he can't believe his eyes, there lying on the floor is, is the Briska Rav, sleeping on the floor. He says, what is the brisk of doing sleeping on the floor over here? So the hotel owner says, oh, I can't, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. I, I, I didn't know the brisk of I didn't know it was the brisk of In those days, they didn't have like, you know, pictures, like, you know, like, you scroll through pictures of the rabbis. So he wakes up the brisk of and he says, I'm so, so, I can't believe it. I'm so, so sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to, to ask you to sleep on the floor or whatever. The next morning, the, the hotel owner comes to the brisk of and he's begging him, can you please forgive me? So the Briskarov says to him, look, in this week's Torah portion, 
Avram is visited by these people, these Arab travelers, and Lot is. Now, Lot goes all the way out for Lot, which we're going to see later is a bad guy, whatever. It's a long, complicated story. We're not going to get to the whole Lot story right now because there's a whole Lot to say about that. <laughs> um, but Lot is. Um, Lot treats the guests with incredible kindness. He runs to them, he bows down, he begs them to come. But he's not given any credit for that. He's, only, he's saved because of Avraham's goodness, who's his uncle. He's not saved for his own goodness. But you wonder, like, why didn't he get saved? He did such an act of hachnasas archim. He did such an act of kindness and welcoming in of guests too. He saw the two guests and he ran and he bowed down before them and he begged them to come in. So why is he not given any reward for his own act of kindness? Says the Briskarov, look at the verse. When it describes the people coming to Lot, it says, Hold on. It says, sorry. And the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. But Lot, Yosheh, Bashar, Sodom, and Lot was sitting at the entrance to Sodom. And he sees them, and he begs them, and he runs to them, and he bows down, and he begs them to come in. It says, two angels came. By Avram, it says, he saw three men walking, three Arab travelers. When Avram ran out to beg them to come into his house, he didn't know they were angels. They looked like Arab travelers, and yet he extended themselves to him. Lot only cares about the angels. When it's angels, he runs and helps them. That's no, no kindness. You are not judged in life, my friends. You are not judged by how you treat the most you know, important people, the, the most you know, societally deemed worthy people in the world. You're not judged by how you treat the rabbi or the, your boss. You're dreamed by how you teach, treat the barista at Starbucks. You're you're, you're judged by how you treat the custodian in the school. You're judged by how you treat the people who are, the, the lady who comes and cleans your house. We are not judged by how we treat the people who everyone is honoring. We're judged by how you treat the little people, so to speak. Avram sees three Arab travelers, just Arab travelers, and he runs out to greet them. He deserves great praise. Lot only does that when he sees angels coming. So the briskarov, fascinatingly, so the man says, what do you want me to do, Rebbe? You have to forgive me. You have to forgive me. And the, Re- the briskarov said, I'll forgive you on one condition. Listen to this amazing thing. I'll forgive you on the condition that you come to my house for two weeks and you see how we treat guests in our house. And the man came for two weeks. He spent two weeks in the briskarov's house and he saw how the briskarov treated every single guest from the smallest to the biggest with such incredible kindness and love and decency and respect and treated everybody like they were the most important person in the world. And then the Briskarov said, now I'll forgive you and you can go on your way. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's what it's all about. Kindness, kindness, kindness. Better to do it with your body than with your money. Although it's also good to do it with your money. Better to do it with your body than with your money. It is something that keeps your actions. Kindness is a preservative that keeps whatever you do rock solid forever. Olam chesed yibana, the world was built on kindness. Continuity is built on kindness. And lastly, the importance of making sure that we treat everybody with the same level of respect and kindness and decency, not just when it's somebody who everyone thinks is such a big hotshot, but even the little person, we should be looking out to smile, to say a word, and because those are often the people who need it the most. The big, fan, you know, the big famous guy, he's getting 
platitudes all the time from everybody, but it's the guy who people don't even realize, don't appreciate. You know, if someone comes out and, and, and fixes your tire for a AAA, you know, you're, I mean, he charged me $170, I can't believe it. This guy, poor guy, the guy all day long, people are grumbling. He only gets $30 of that, you know what I'm saying? Like, but he needs people to show appreciation and thanks and to shower him, treat him like a human being, treat him with honor and respect and dignity, because that's really how we're judged. May we all be incredibly respectful, kind, giving, loving to everybody, and maybe become great ourselves. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being awesome. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.